0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Everyone has heard of Albert Einstein and some of the major scientific theories he developed. But did you know that Einstein also had a theory of infidelity or that he was living a polyamorous lifestyle? Likewise, while you may be familiar with the writings of renowned novelist James Joyce, odds are that you don't know about his fart fetish, or the letters he wrote to his wife proclaiming his love of her flatulence. It turns out that a lot of revered historical figures had fascinating intimate lives and a proclivity for kink. So let's continue the discussion of kinky history we started in the previous episode. Today, we're going to talk about the kinky sex lives of some famous folks from the past, But we're also going to explore the history and evolution of various sexual behaviors, from oral sex, to pegging, to foot fetishes. I am joined once again by Esme Louise James, who is best known for her series Kinky History, which has amassed nearly 3 million followers across her social media accounts. Esme is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, and her thesis traces an aesthetic of the erotic across 18th century literature. As May is author of the upcoming book, Kinky History, the stories behind our intimate lives, past and present. She also hosts the popular Kinky History podcast. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Looking to broaden your sexual horizons? Check out Cheeks, a subscription-based sexual wellness platform offering a safe space for both entertainment and education. You'll find sex tutorials and live workshops, in addition to erotic films and audio stories, as well as a taboo-breaking magazine. If you're on the hunt for ethically-sourced content that celebrates diversity in all forms, Cheeks has you covered. With my exclusive discount code, Laymiller, my last name, you can try Cheeks for free for seven days when you select the annual subscription option. You can cancel at no cost or switch to the monthly plan at any time during the trial period. The monthly subscription is $14.90 per month, while the yearly subscription is $9.90 per month. Watch, listen, and learn with stimulating erotic content and educational resources. What are you waiting for? Check the show notes for the link or head over to getjeeks.com to start your free trial. That's G E T C H E E X.com, discount code L A Miller, L E H Miller. Okay, Esme, let's dive into more kinky history. Let's start with oral sex. We know from data and research that oral sex has been on the rise for years. Since the pioneering research of Alfred Kinsey, we've seen over the decades that the prevalence of this activity has risen to the point where it's now very mainstream. For most people today, it's part of their sexual repertoire. And this is actually a pretty stunning change when you consider that not too long ago, sodomy laws made oral sex illegal in many parts of the world. But while oral sex seems more popular than ever, it's definitely not a new sexual practice. So what can you tell us about the history of fellatio and cunnilingus? How far back can we trace these behaviors? And what interesting facts did you discover in exploring the history of oral?
1: The history of oral is such an interesting one because more than most sexual practices, this connection of uh, the mouth being a very intimate and completely non-procreative behaviour has gone through various cultural definitions throughout the ages. We can trace it all the way back to the ancient world. Um, We always go back to my favourite place, ancient Greece, where (laughs) it doesn't matter what's happening, but it definitely began there. Um, But we see depictions in plays from the time where we have like, again, Aristophanes' played Lysistrata, we can kind of see this depiction of women talking about being licked and the pleasure of that. We go to ancient Rome and remain in remaining brothels. We have uh, visual depictions of artwork that are still remain on the walls of the brothel of Cunnilingus in action, both for being performed man-man, woman-woman, man-woman, all of the above. But what's so interesting in the ancient world is all that mattered when it came to cunnilingus was who was performing and who was receiving. To give oral sex was always believed to be a very feminine act. So for a man to perform this on another man It was completely unacceptable uh, for a man to do so unless he was of a lower social standing. So a lot of the time in art depicted, you will see oral sex performed between a man of lower social standing, if he was a servant, maybe a slave, uh, to another man. It's completely acceptable to receive, just not give oral sex. And what's so interesting about this is that uh, only a few years down the line, when we get to something like the Penitential of Theodore, which is around the 5th century, uh, and this belongs to the Christian tradition. And in this belief, we kind of reverse our conception of oral sex on its head, for lack of a better term. And the only thing that matters is if you wasted your sperm. So you should only do pedants if you were the person who received oral sex because you wasted your sperm into the mouth of another person but you're welcome to give it because giving pleasure was seen as a good thing so we have this continual switching of whether or not we like oral sex it's always been performed that's most important we've always performed oral sex but we just had different cultural stigmas um, it ends up playing a really important role when we come to the medieval ages because the active oral, whether front or back, becomes quite heavily tied to witchcraft. And this is because of the Christian belief that the lower your body was to the ground, the dirtier that part of the body was. And so your backside and your private parts were logically the dirtiest part. So if you were to kiss that, you were seen as being as deformed as the devil itself morally. And so people were actually charged with heresy and witchcraft on accusations that they had performed oral sex or rimming on a partner. That was enough to get you accused of these heinous acts um, solely because of that.
0: That is fascinating. (laughs) I was actually (laughs) going to ask a follow-up question on rimming because that's another popular form of sexual activity these days. For people who aren't familiar with the term rimming, it refers to oral stimulation of the anus. And that's not a new practice either. (laughs) You know, we have historical depictions that go back a long time to tell us that this is something that was done, but it was controversial. It still is controversial to some extent today. You know, whereas fellatio and cunnilingus have become more socially accepted, there's still some taboo around anal stimulation. and. While we don't necessarily hear the accusations of witchcraft <laughs> happening today, anal stimulation is something that still remains controversial to some degree. So, yeah, it's fascinating to look at the history of these activities. We see that, for one thing, they're not new, but there's always been some controversy surrounding a lot of them and there's been that ebb and flow you know and I think that that's like the hallmark of sexual history is that you have these periods of more sexual liberation and freedom followed by periods of sexual repression and conservatism you know that pendulum is always shifting and it feels like in recent years you know we went from this ever-increasing sexual liberation to now there's this more conservative traction that's happening around sexual attitudes and behaviour.
1: I think that's absolutely spot on. And what's so interesting when we look back at depictions of whether it be Cunnilingus or Rameen throughout history is that the fact that they can take on cultural significance, i.e. having you accused of witchcraft or having you being considered effeminate because you were performing it on a man in ancient Greece means that these acts have been so common and so well known in our cultural awareness that they were able to do so and when we look today you know one of my favorite facts is that ribbing is on the rise uh, statistically and uh, there was a study recently in melbourne australia and they did a long-term study of data that came from the national studies uh, six years ago versus in the last year and they found that now one in four people are reporting having performed or received uh ribbing where that was a very pretty much unknown act six years ago. And if we look at that idea of cultural significance and how that can change, something like TikTok can be seen to uh, be influencing the increased popularity of that sexual act today because this idea of rimming kind of blew up um, and a lot of people were hearing about it for the first time and it was seen as something that was really cool and liberating to do and if you were okay to perform rimming, you were sexually empowered. And now we're seeing an increase in the act, and that is so similar to what's happened all throughout history. Every time that it was okay or not okay, you can see the changes of behavior in the amount of depiction that we have of that act, whether good or bad.
0: Yeah, the norms around this are always shifting, and there's some critical moment that it shifts to where you start to get this backlash that happens. And, you know, it's not easy to know exactly when you're in the midst of that (laughs) backlash, when you're living through it. Like, how significant is that? How is that really going to alter the path of behavior in the future going forward? But someone will write history books about it at some point (laughs) and talk about the kinky era that we're currently in.
1: (laughs) The rise of rimming.
0: (laughs) Yes. Now, speaking of the rise of rimming, I wrote an article for Playboy a while back, titled something along the lines of like the peak of pegging right so that was you know specifically about women who are interested in anally penetrating their male partner with a strap on dildo that's usually how pegging is defined i'm curious you know in the work that you've done have you ever come across pegging in our kinky history
1: Absolutely. I mean, once again, we're going straight all the way back to uh, ancient Greece and uh, the ancient world. But the rules about pegging and the use of dildos and strap ons is very much the same as oral sex, coincidentally. That to be penetrated was the feminine act, and to be the one who penetrated was the masculine act. That doesn't mean that people always conform to those gender roles but it just means that if a man did allow themselves to be penetrated and it was found out that could be used um, to kind of scandalize someone this happened very famously in the case of Julius Caesar and he had a rumored relationship with King Nicomedes and what was so controversial about this relationship was not the fact that there was a romantic sexual relationship going on between two men It was the fact that Julius Caesar was considered uh, a great leader and he was quote, playing the wife to King Nicomedes. He was allowing himself to be penetrated. And that's what made it controversial. Then you see something like the rise of Peggy today and it's still associated with these same ideas of taking power and changing power dynamics. You know, that peg the patriarchy was such a big cry in the last uh, three, four years. And I imagine, and you can most likely tell me from your research, that Peggy most likely would have increased as a sexual act just because of that awareness and this sense of, it's a feminist act to perform because of that new association.
0: And I definitely do have some data pointing to rising interest in pegging, (laughs) let's say. But it is interesting, the gendered aspects people have laid onto the different roles associated with pegging and with giving and receiving oral sex. I don't think we've totally escaped that. You know, those beliefs still hold to some degree today. So it's interesting to see that, you know, they've kind of been with us uh, throughout history. Yes, things have changed in some ways, but in other ways haven't changed all that much
1: no especially when it comes to gender i think gender is the most stubborn moving figure in all of the history of sexuality we just can't seem to get rid of those associations
0: yes i would agree with that now let's talk about fetishes so i read a book a while back called perv by jesse beering and it explores the fascinating history of fetishes and one of the things that i learned in that book that was so interesting was that historically Fetishes, and in particular, foot fetishes, seem to increase in popularity during epidemics and pandemics. And when I conducted research on sexual behavior during the COVID pandemic, my findings kind of lined up with that and showed that people actually became kinkier during the COVID pandemic. So tell us a little bit about this. Why might fetishes and kinks rise during epidemics and pandemics? What's behind that pattern?
1: Oh, this is such a fascinating topic. The study that she's referring to, it would have been done in the 1980s, and it looked back onto literature and media throughout history, and it basically linked the rise of foot fetishism in the 13th century, 16th century, 19th century, and what was, you know, the the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic with periods of sexually transmitted epidemics. A weird phenomenon seemed to happen that when the genitals were posing too much threat to the body the most likely part of the body we were then to sexualize was feet in in the 13th century we have the troubadours who are kind of singing praise to this beautiful feminine foot and they're writing poetry about how they love feet that are beautifully arched with no webbed toes, and there was artwork depicting the troubadours singing with uh, women who were barefooted around them. And then you come to the 16th century and the same phenomenon seems to arise. We have this fashion of toe cleavage that emerges where the front uh, few toes, you can kind of see the gaps between the big toes and the small toes, and that became really fashionable. And artwork would depict women kind of posing out their foot towards the painter and the troubadour poetry spurged in popularity. Come to the 19th century when you then have uh, your next syphilis epidemic, we have brothels that start to specialise in foot fetishism. Um, You have sex workers for the first time who start to actually offer foot worshipping as something that's quite readily available and accepted and normal within brothels. And a famous example of this, you know, coming uh, towards that 20th century period is someone like F. Scott Fitzgerald. I nearly called him Fitzgerald because that's my nickname now. But, (laughs) But, you know, he's a recorded historical figure who described himself as having a Freudian shame about his feet and was actually described by a sex worker he continually saw as a foot fetishist. She used that term. And it was because he would just go to the brothel to worship her foot. And around that time is when we start to see, once again, another pandemic rise. They're in the midst of that. And there's just something so interesting about why is it that it's feet? Why after, once the genitals are gone, do we turn to feet?
0: (laughs) It's an interesting question, you know, and I think there are different ways that you could explain that. I think just backing up as a starting point, what all of this speaks to is the fact that human sexuality is incredibly flexible and fluid, and we can orient our erotic turn-ons toward a wide range of targets right so there's a lot of different things like human sexuality is just much more adaptable than you might think and it can shift and be fluid depending on what's going on in culture and society at a given moment in time so i think it's fascinating looking at this historically because that's just further evidence of just the inherent adaptability of our sexuality but in terms of why feet in particular might be a turn on to some people A lot has been said and written about where the sensory processing centers are for the genitals and for the feet and how they're very close to one another and how that could potentially explain why there's this association or the sexualization of feet that oftentimes happens. Maybe there's a little bit of cross-wiring that happens that allows, you know, one to kind of feed into uh, the other processing center. So that's one potential possibility. We also know, at least in modern times, feet and footwear in particular have been very sexualized within our culture. Like if you look at advertisements for women's shoes and boots and stockings and all these other sorts of things, like there is this sexualization of feet that happens in media and advertising and has also happened in art. And so, you know, we've kind of seen a lot of those cues before and that might help to you know, further create an association between feet and and sex appeal. So it's interesting. I don't know that we fully have the answers for all of this, but I think with fetishes and anything else you always need to look at it through a biopsychosocial lens, right? So there might be some biological factors like where the sensory processing centers are in the brain and how they might overlap. And then you've got the, you know, sort of individual psychological factors like your general openness to experience and willingness to explore different sensations and activities. And then you've got the social and environmental factors like the pandemics and epidemics and the advertising and all this stuff. So it's just extraordinarily complex.
1: It's incredibly interesting in terms of the cultural factors as well, because uh, in this research study that was being quoted, what they were looking at was uh, how literature about feet during the AIDS epidemic was starting to rise exponentially. And one of the things they actually suggested was potentially all of these magazines that were starting to emerge that were advertising, you know, legs up and heels up and pornographic magazines turning to feet was this kind of deliberate attempt in a lot of ways to fetishize feet because if you did that you could potentially protect a lot of people i'm actually going to quote from your finding now which was uh, about uh the prevalence of fantasies about feet and toes and i believe that you found i love that i'm just quoting your research to you um (laughs) that one of the, the biggest groups that uh, reported have ha- having fantasies were uh, bisexual and gay men. And I find that so interesting when you look to these the 1980s where this demographic were explicitly being targeted with pornographic uh, literature about feet in an effort to offer a safer practice of sex at the time. And now, all those years later, there's potentially a bit of a correlation between those facts. Maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. And this is making me think back to a previous episode of the podcast I did about the fetishization of semen or cum, right? And how it's theorized that, you know, a big part of the reason why facials became so popular in porn is that it was tied to the AIDS epidemic because – You had to take ejaculate outside of the body because that was too risky. And so what did they do? They did facials and these other sorts of things. And then that became sort of the staple of porn. And, you know, so it's interesting when you started thinking about these things, like how something like a pandemic or an epidemic could just totally change our sexual interests in a lot of ways by changing what is happening in porn and, you know, what is considered taboo and all these other sorts of things. That's why it's endlessly fun to be a sex researcher or historian (laughs) because there's so many fascinating questions to ask.
1: There's so many different factors uh, because, you I mean, you you have all of that idea about the impact of the pandemic. You have all of the biological factors to consider. But then even, you know, there's the other areas of feet like stockings that you mentioned as well. And the story of how stockings became sexualized is most likely also a, a cultural moment when uh, nylon stockings were invented just before the war. And as soon as the war started, Everyone had to give up their nylon stockings, hand them back and give them to the war effort because they were used to make parachutes and uh, other military equipment. And so no one could have nylon stockings and they became this very eroticized idea of liberation because when the war was going to end, we could all have our nylon stockings back. And the only people who had access to nylon stockings were the troops. And so they would give them to, you know, women overseas as a as a, a way to woo them as a present because they were so hard to get your hands on because they'd all gone to the war effort. And this happened so much so that when the war finally ended, DuPont's campaign was, war is over, nylons are here. And we had, you know, literal nylon riots break out as people lined up in America to get their hands on a pair of stockings. And it was all because of that association of this period where we could be free and safe with nylon stockings. And now we, I, well, you know, obviously we don't cry war is over every time we see a sexy pair of lingerie, but that was the cultural connection that kind of brought them into popularity and definitely fetishized them.
0: Yeah, that is all so so fascinating. (laughs) And I don't think anyone is going to take their nylon stockings for granted anymore after hearing that.
1: (laughs) A sign of liberation.
0: (laughs) Yes. Look at your stockings as a sign of liberation. So, let's talk about some kinky historical figures. Now, you discuss this a bit in your TED Talk and on your podcast, and it's fascinating. Let's start with James Joyce, one of the most famous and influential novelists of the 20th century. Many people know him for books such as Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which I had to read when I was in high school, uh, as well as Ulysses. But almost no one knows about the fart letters that he wrote to his beloved wife, Nora. Apparently, Joyce had a fart fetish. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Oh, I I think it's um, the least you could say that he had a fart fetish. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joyce was definitely an man, uh, in particular his wife, Nora Barnacle, which is a fantastic name, by the way. But in a period of time when they were travelling apart in 1912, Nora writes Joyce a letter. And we don't have this letter. Historians can only imagine what this letter says in it. But Joyce responds back and says, your letter has driven me insane. I didn't know your imagination was so dirty. I'm going to try and write a letter that can keep up with the filth that you've just written me. And so they enter into a correspondence. We only have Joyce's side and it includes such beautiful lines as, my sweet little whorish Nora you had an arse filled with farts that night, darling, and I fucked them out of you. Big fat fellows, long windy ones, quick little merry cracks, and a lot of tiny little naughty farties, which ended in one long gush from your hole. And it's, it's embedded in my brain. Like, all of the letters are just <laughs> in my brain. <laughs> they, they are there. Um, but the letters are really experimental. He calls her continually his dirty little farty Nora. Um, he talks about her shitting in a cupboard like a doe doing her dung and only wishing he could see the the poo stains that are left on her drawers. And he also, you know, mentions at one stage that in a room filled with farting women, he would always know her smell. Um, And this was a really long correspondence. Like it went on for months. And as an undergraduate student, I remember that as soon as Joyce came on the syllabus, there was that one person in the class ready to stand up and be like, do you know Joyce's letters? And, you know, years later, as I'm now on the other end of that teaching Joyce, I was like, no one do it. (laughs)
0: Stay still.
1: (laughs) But I think it's a brilliant example of a historical couple experimenting with the boundaries of kinks and fetishes and working out mutually a desire between them. Whatever Nora wrote in that letter, the fact that Joyce comes back and says, I never thought that you would, you know, write like this or you had these fantasies. I'm gonna try and, you know, give them back to you. Um, because she's clearly she knows Joyce, she knows her husband, she knows what he wants really, and so she puts it in a letter in this kind of early form of sex team. And, you know, what I mentioned in my TED talk is the fact that I don't think that this is very dissimilar to experiences of sexting and Zoom sessions that we had in the pandemic, when you have to take a disembodied uh, experience and work out how you can negotiate a fetish through it. And I think it's really interesting that rather than sending a normal sexting letter about the size of his penis or something, she goes for... A fetish fantasy that she knows will drive him wild. Isn't that interesting?
0: Oh, it's so interesting. Naughty little merry farts. Like, I don't know. Those words are just going to be popping around in my head all day. (laughs) Merry little farts.
1: uh, Pop, pop, pop comes out of a girlish bum, bum, bum is another line. So. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, so many good lines. Now, speaking of famous figures, you also did a show about Albert Einstein, who is perhaps the most famous scientist of all time in the world. And we've all heard about his many famous scientific discoveries and theories. We've also heard about his eccentricities. (laughs) But he also had an interesting sexual and romantic life as well, and even developed a theory of infidelity, which I think is one of his lesser-known theories. (laughs) (laughs) So, what did you learn in the process of researching the life of Mr. Einstein?
1: Einstein is a truly fascinating figure. Out of most of the historical figures I talk about, I think he is probably the most pedestalized of anyone. Einstein is synonymous with intelligence um, for a lot of us, but when you go back through his letters and his writings and his relationships, he's also a confused and very problematic man. He has, throughout his life, he is very, very uh, true to his theory of infidelity. He describes monogamy as the bitter fruit for everyone involved and believes that humans would all be happier if we were allowed to actually follow our desires and our inclinations and make love with whoever we want to make love with. The problem with Einstein was that that was only true for him and not for his wives at large. But Einstein has two wives throughout his life and cheats on them both A small estimate of 12 times each With various women One was a spy Which I think is quite sexy I'm really waiting for that Spin-off series on Netflix (laughs) Uh, And he would do odd things Quite sadistic things in, In terms of When he was having an affair At one stage He suggested that his mistress Should actually come and live uh, with his wife and they would have a, a nice little uh, love triangle together and this mistress actually responded by saying that she knows the maths behind triangles a little better than he does and knows that that wouldn't work out which I think is a beautiful <laughs> a beautiful line but he would take these letters and he would rub in his wife's face that he was having an affair and would be upset if she wasn't upset about him so she, he wants her to hurt and he really got off on this idea of jealousy from his wives while exploring what if taken out of context would have been a lovely theory of polyamory Um, and about the fact that libido can't be constrained so we should love and we should do it well and we should communicate and we should have great stories with everyone at the end of the day apart from he just wasn't very good at doing that with his wife.
0: So, so interesting. I'm sure that you could entertain us, fascinate us for hours with everything that you've (laughs) learned, but let me just ask one more question, which is whether there are any other historical figures you want to tell us about or any other just interesting, fascinating facts you've learned in the process of researching the history of human sexuality. (laughs)
1: I think the, the biggest lesson I've learned is that there has yet to be a historical figure that I can't find dirt on, <laughs> which I think <laughs> tells you a lot of things, uh, because as we've mentioned, you know, these are figures that are larger than life, or they feel untouchable, but it only takes going through someone's letters or going through some archives or following up on a little footnote in someone's biography that can tell you so much more about someone, and whether these were crazy fetishes like Joyce or theories of infidelity like Einstein, or even someone like Hans Christian Andersen, the author of The Little Mermaid, who would write and express you know queer desires and asexuality. This uh, he you know this desire that he doesn't want to ever physically put love in the act, but he wants to have romantic. Um, relationships with people without physicality and I just no matter what sexual experience and labels we have today you can find the origins of them all throughout history I think we just need the tools to be able to do so um which is I guess you know where works of yourself and sex historians come in We're to go back and find what those terms used to be or how people used to express the desires that we know today as bisexuality, asexuality, even you know transgendered experiences. They all have their origins in history.
0: Yeah, I love the way that you put that and I totally agree. And yeah, I think the take-home there is really that when it comes to sexual history, when you start digging into it, The surprising thing is when you discover that someone wasn't a little bit kinky, right? Because almost everybody is in one way or another.
1: Absolutely. I get quite annoyed sometimes. I'm like, surely. And then I go a few pages. I'm like, oh, that's okay. You are really into poo. Like, we're fine.
0: (laughs) There it is. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Esme. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So you can find me at Esme.Louise across TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. I also have my book, Kinky History, coming out uh, very soon at the end of this year in Australia, but international publication early next year. And you can also find Kinky History the podcast. (laughs)
0: Well, I love that. And I can't wait for the book to come out. And when it does, maybe we'll have you back on the show to tell us a little bit more about our kinky history.
1: That sounds absolutely wonderful. This has been such a pleasure and an honor.
0: The feeling is mutual. So (laughs) thank you so much for your time. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, sexandpsychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.